And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East at Sierra, West at Sierra, Southwest at Sierra, and North Northeast at Sierra. Wind southwest, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll, westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, 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 now. Eastcast. It's the first show of 2014. It's good to be back. We are a forecast you can rely on for all things arts and culture, listings, interviews and new music from East London. I'm Nia Charpentier and I'm here for the next hour with Pearl Wise, Anna Xavier and Melanie Brown. And we record our show in the Abbott Street Studios in Dalston. We also have a website, eastcastshow.com. And yes, we're all over the social networkings. Just search Eastcast Show on Facebook and Twitter and you'll find us. On the show today, we talk to a Stoke Newington acupuncturist. And Anna, you're clearly still in the Christmas mood as you've been speaking to an ice skater. Yeah, I had a great talk with somebody who has been ice skating since an early age and knows all about it. Um, um, we'll also be hearing a Spark London story about a misadventure in a foreign land. Mm-hmm. And as usual, all the tracks I'm going to play for you are from artists and bands playing in East London in the next few weeks, including Obits, who you just heard at the beginning of the show with their track Operation Bikini that got us going a little bit. Um, and they'll be playing at birthdays on Wednesday 15th of January. We'll also be hearing music from Max Richter, uh, Laura J. Martin, Rainer and Hello Skinny. Where to start? Well, what about this? 
This is Pearl Wise and you're listening to Classic FM. No, not really. It's rare that I play classical music on the show, but um, I couldn't resist um, this guy, uh, Max Richter. Um, this was his track, Sarajevo, and he's playing at the Barbican with um, the BBC Symphony Orchestra and um, will be playing his debut al- album, Memory House. Um, so that was a track from that and um, yeah, I think this is a, a good introduction for people who aren't that into classical music in general. Um, it's quite accessible it's really and quite heart wrenching, pulls on the old heartstrings. So yeah, um, that will be on the twenty fourth of January. It has sold out, but you might be able to get tickets on the day. So um, Anna, keeping in the sort of classical mood, uh, you've been out talking to someone who just glides through life. Well, I spoke to Andrea da Costa, who has been ice skating for almost as long as she's been walking. We talked about her experiences on ice back home in Norway and um, as an ice marshal in an ice rink in London too. And she even told me some tips to become an ace ice skater. I'm Andrea and I'm doing ice skating in my free time. And I also worked at a venue this season as an ice marshal. 
When I was really young, my mom took me to an ice rink in the town that I'm from, which is Oslo in Norway. And I live quite close to an ice rink, so it came quite natural to spend time at the ice rink. So my mom took me and my sister from the age of six until the age of 13 on a regular basis. And it became a big part of my young kind of adulthood. I suppose that's what everyone does back home in Norway. It is quite common that most, you know, most children will have tried ice skating quite a few times because it's not that expensive. You know, like going to an ice rink in in Norway is, is relatively cheap. I think compared to London, so it's you pay maybe one pound and you can spend the whole day if you like. And you can rent really good skates. You get nice skates. And you can choose between using hockey skates and dancing skates. I could always go with my friends anytime and ice skate and we could spend like four or five hours on a Saturday for fun, you know. That that was quite a usual way to spend my weekends. You also worked in here in London as a nice marshal. Yeah, so I had a very fun experience of working for two months as an ice marshal on a public venue, which is a temporary ice rink, so it's open only for the Christmas, New Year's season, basically. Did you have many good experiences in there, surrounded by, I suppose, loads of different situations? It's been very interesting when it comes to like the kind of people that come to ice skate, because it's very, very, very mixed. It's definitely popular for dates. You can you can tell there's like loads of first dates going on. And we had a few wedding proposals because the, the ice marshals are prepared in advance and we have to clear the ice, you know, in the middle of a session and then the couple goes to the middle and and kind of wobbles wobbly kind of on, on the ice ring tries to, to propose and it's, it's worked out every time. So I oh, think it's something that's, that's romantic. You can trust the ice ring for a proposal. <laughs> mm, did any of those go wrong? Well, when it comes to wedding proposal, it's worked out fine every time. The only thing is that you know some people have fallen over, you know, in, in the kind of surprise of it all, I think. But of course, we have accidents, you know, on the ice rink, and every, all the ice marshals are trained. We have first aid training, so we know exactly kind of what to do and what to look out for. The way people fall always surprises me. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's never the way you expect it. You know, you're standing right next to someone and poof, suddenly they're on the ice or on the floor. <laughs> and, you know, some people are just amazing right away. And some children are tiny and they, can, and they manage to skate, you know, first time. Yeah, I have to. I have to say that I actually ice skate and fell off. I flew in the air. Oh, this actually hurts. It does. It does hurt. And I always, I always try my best to kind of motivate, you know, the odd people who are, who are skating for the first few times or after a bad fall. That you know what? When I learned to ice skate, I had to learn how to fall on the ice. Of course. Like the beginning of the training was just how to catch yourself when you fall, how to fall, different ways you can fall. Because at the end of the day, it's, you're getting, you're kind of learning how to walk again, in a sense. Because yes. you, you, you do, you're using your muscles and your body weight completely in a different way to what you're using, to the way you're using them when you walk. So for everyone, like finding your balance is like the first step really to, to skating. And if you're nervous and tense, then you, you know, gonna find your balance, <laughs> and then you fall, and then you're like, okay, well now you've fallen once, you know, yeah. you can fall again, and you know it's not, you know what it feels like. And <laughs> so mention that. What are the tips you're giving to people that want to start off skating and they have no clue what to do? Yeah, I've been, I'm always asked for like tips and advice. So when they're on the ice, I, I, I try to, to just kind of skate with them for a little while and try to get them to not hold on to the barrier too much because that way they'll get a sense of what it feels like to be standing on your skates. And you have to make sure your skates are really tight. That's always a bit of an issue. Sometimes you can see like the laces are coming off and so that's that's like the crucial bit is that they need to be really tight and really fitted, the skates. And definitely about being relaxed and finding your balance and like bending your legs. And we have something called the penguin walk, which is like a oh, funny yes, I you might have seen people one. do that, you know. You have to do little <laughs> small steps and put your kind of your skates at a V V angle with the kind of heels touching and then walk carefully forward and you know, things like that. I try to kind of motivate them. It's not something that you do full time. It was a job that you did and surely by the enthusiasm you show you're gonna do it again. Did you get more into ice skating now that you're here? Definitely I did. Um, I hadn't actually thought of bringing my skates to England because I have my own ice skates. 
after I did this job, I, I got to know a lot of people who are in the kind of ice skating community and who do it on a regular basis. And I found out there's, you know, quite a few ice rinks, permanent ice rinks around with the times and it's actually possible to do it here as well which I hadn't really thought about for a while and yeah. where are they then? there are quite a few and I think the closest to for example East London would be Lee Valley and then there's also Alexandra Palace and which is quite a nice indoors ice rink they're all indoors ice rinks actually um, and there's also one uh, nearby Brixton which is called Streatham Ice Rink and that's also new And um, what differences have you realized between people in London and back home on skating? Do you think people are a bit uh, more into it? Like, yeah, let's give it a go. This is different. Or people are more afraid of shy? I think here uh, people might still see it more as an entertainment, like, like a thing you do for, you know, for leisure, maybe not as a sport so much, as a winter sport. Um, and, you know, you get a lot of tourists, obviously, and people who kind of have, have really gathered the family or a group of friends to do this for one hour you know there's music and there's special lights so it's a very different atmosphere um, and you, you also have like one ice rink you know in Oslo or maybe two that do the you know the music and the lights for fun but it's definitely more I think that's inspired by you know the ice rinks you see in New York and here, even here in London and whereas in Oslo I think it's much more done as a almost as a sport as a physical activity like you can go and work out and do ice skating And some people do speed skating, you know, and some people do hockey skating. And then, you, you know, you spend hours and there might not be that many people. And you, so you haven't really got an audience either. I mean, I think ice, maybe ice skating will become more popular and they will stay open more, longer, you know, the temporary ones. But I think already now, you know, with the shows like Dancing on Ice and, and these temporary ice rinks, they were always full. It was always packed every time I worked, pretty much. And in the daytime, actually, we'd have, we would have schools coming in to ice skate who had never, you know, tried ice skating before so you know, it might be it might change over time become something that more people actually want to really try and learn well, thanks for that Anna I thought that was really interesting I, I thought um, I, I agree with, with what she was saying about we don't really see it as a sport I mean I, I just think of it as something nice to do at Christmas time but actually a lot of the temporary ones are still open now and it'll probably be a lot less uh, busy yeah, now not, not for longer but yeah, yeah. a bit longer Yeah. I was very impressed when she said that they uh, they skated for four to five hours a day when they were young. I think that's quite... If you get used to it, it's, it she was telling me how they just... This is working out. Instead of going for a walk or going for a run, they go get their skates on and then just slide. And it's just impressive. I, exactly. I can imagine it being really fun. And, and especially if you don't have any audience, it's just kind of a bit zen too. You're zoning out, you're there. When I was a kid, I was always impressed by my Norwegian friends who skied to school. I always thought that oh, was... Oh, yes! <laughs> That's That's Cross-country skied to school. It sounded like great More exciting, yeah, more exciting than actually just walking or exactly. cycling. Yeah. <laughs> Much more exciting. So I really don't know how to categorise um, this London-based multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, composer, Laura J. Martin. She's created her own kind of universe with music that would probably be perfect for like a, quite a dark animated story it's got lots of sounds in there um she released her second album dazzle days on the static caravan label in october last year and will be performing at the sea bright arms on thursday the 16th of january um this is actually a track from her previous album the hangman tree um so this is laura j martin with the lesson
was Laura J. Martin with the lesson. Sorry, I said she was from London. She's actually from Liverpool. My mistake. She's a Liverpool girl. We'll forgive you that one. Uh, So now in the spirit of the new year, a time when we think more than usual about our health and what's good for us, I caught up with an acupuncturist to talk about this ancient practice. Hi, I'm Ross. I'm an acupuncturist and I live in Ibiza, but I come back to London to practice in Stoke Newington at a place called Shine Holistic. So we're here in Chinatown, obviously acupuncture comes from China. Most people know what acupuncture is, but can you just remind us how exactly it works okay well there's there's a couple of ways to look at the way acupuncture works if you look at it from the western perspective then what we're doing is we're regulating hormones in the body so regulating serotonin dopamine in the brain and releasing endorphins which are the chemicals that help to relieve pain so helping injuries and musculoskeletal pain in that way if we look at it from a chinese perspective then what we're really doing is finding where there's blockages in the body of a of a flow and some people will talk about that as chi, but you can also think about it as blood flow. Some areas of the body become obstructed due to tightness, and with acupuncture we release that tightness to allow blood flow to get back into an area of tissue that may have stopped functioning quite so well because it's not so well irrigated with the blood and all of the um, agents that are in blood that help tissue to function. You talk about healing issues, you know, like problems with muscles and so on, but at this time of year, you know, January, people are thinking about their health. Can acupuncture also be used as a preventative, so for just for general health? Well, yeah, in fact, um, acupuncture actually historically in China was, was most prominently used for that purpose. The emperor used to have a team of acupuncturists whose job it was to keep him in tip-top health. And, um, in fact, if he would fall ill, then sometimes they would have their heads chopped off. So there's definitely a history of acupuncture as a preventative medicine. There's a saying um, in Chinese medicine that the lowest form of medicine is to treat something that's already occurred, and the sort of medium level is to prevent anything from occurring, and the highest level is actually to treat the spirit, so to treat the human experience on that level of emotions and thoughts and the relationship between the mind and the body and the environment. And it's obviously a method that's thousands of years old. Have new methods crept in, or do you practice you know, exactly how they, they did all those years ago? Well, that's an interesting um, topic because at the moment there's a bit of a resurgence of a return to the classics. We have the, uh, the main classic of acupuncture is called the Neijing, which is made up of the Su Wen and the Ling Shu. And um, in the Cultural Revolution, when Mao Zedong came into power, he actually took all of this ancient knowledge and artistry and repackaged it for uh, a modern, mainly Western sort of perspective. You know, Western science had come into the forefront and was being used in China a lot. And so um, he created what we now call TCM, it's traditional Chinese medicine. And this is um, more of a sort of systematic, cut and dried approach to treating with acupuncture and with herbs. But it's also, um, it loses some of the essence of the artistry which historically Chinese medicine was carried out using. And there's several prominent practitioners now that are studying the classics deeply and teaching what, what we can learn from them to other practitioners. And this is my personal preference of, of how to practice as well. Acupuncture is not really something that's a mental exercise, an academic exercise, as, as it can sometimes be taught, but it's something where you have to develop skills with your hands, and this is, this is what we learn from the classics. And so in more modern times, acupuncture has sometimes been used for things like quitting smoking, losing weight, that kind of thing. You know, again, things that people are thinking about this time of year. What do you make of that? Well, acupuncture is commonly used for helping people to quit smoking and to to lose weight. Um, It's not my preferred area of practice. One of the main pitfalls is that whilst you can help to boost the metabolism and also um, in regulating dopamine, which is that hormone that produces a a feeling of well-being, which we get from using substances like cigarettes and which decreases when we give up, and that's what, what gives us the discomfort of giving up. Whilst these things are true, it takes so much from the person, from the patient themselves in terms of what they want to do with their own life and the other lifestyle factors that are at play in order for those kind of treatments to be successful. So, yeah, it's something that is used a lot and it can be effective, but if you're thinking about having treatment for that, you've got to be in a place where you're committed to giving up and not just expect the treatment to do the job for you. 
And how did you get into it? Um, I got into acupuncture when I was living in San Francisco and I was an international exchange student and I was given the liberty to study all kinds of uh, wacky things when I was in San Francisco. It's uh, sort of uh, quite well known for that. And so I studied um, philosophy, Chinese medicine, artists in San Francisco, all kind of subjects that I'd never really encountered before. And the Chinese medicine sort of stuck with me. Um, it, it really sort of lit up in my mind. And several years later, I was on a meditation retreat in Nepal. And when I was very deep into the meditation, I started to notice things about the way my body was working, sensations and, um, and patterns of, of feeling in the body that really resonated with what I'd learned back in San Francisco all that time before. And to cut a long story short, that was the point at which I started to think, I'm going to look into this. So I came and I assisted a doctor in Chinatown to get some experience. And then I enrolled in a degree course. And, and there we go. Then I became an acupuncturist. And so if people want to look you up for treatment, where can they do that? Well, the best thing, because I'm in, in different places, is to go to my Facebook page, which is Ross Stevenson, acupuncturist, um, Stevenson with a PH. And yeah, just look me up on Facebook send me a message and I'll be happy to discuss any aspects of acupuncture with anyone that's interested. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's not quite, doesn't quite sound like a, a, what I would expect from an acupuncturist, but I suppose you could, anyone can study it these days and just, you know. And go through, go through different routes. Yeah, also. there's all sorts. Of, that's what he was saying, that he, had, he went through this whole route to get there. So it's really interesting. Has anyone tried it? I've had it once. I um I lived in Mexico for a year and I think it must have been very dusty towards the end of uh, end of that year and I sort of just couldn't stop sneezing. I literally had like sneeze disease. Um <laughs> so, and it didn't stop when I got back to England. I was like, Oh, this is not very fun. So I went and they put like needles all around my nose and in my forehead. But I I'd been out I'd been out drinking the night before and I had honestly one of the worst hangovers I've ever had. And he, he put the needle in the middle of my sort of head and it just started vibrating. <laughs> vibrating and he was like, Maybe come for the session today. So <laughs> but did it. you go back? No, I don't think I did. I think it resolved itself. I think I might have tried a potion instead, and I think that worked. <laughs> <laughs> you're not... <laughs> that, yeah, that one too. And that you're not too. sneezing anymore, so that worked. It did. Either way. It clearly something worked. <laughs> Goodness. Um, so you're listening to Eastcast. You can hear us on NTS on a Monday at 8am, twice a month. And all our shows can also be found and listened to on our website, eastcastshow.com. You can also say hello to us anytime on Twitter and Facebook at Eastcast Show. So some more music. Um, this is from London-based duo comprised of Rebecca Ra and Nick Nell. And they, um, I think they're truly in the spirit of what's happening um, in the UK with music at the moment, where people just don't want to be defined by a particular genre and just taking loads of different references and mixing them all up. Um, singer Rebecca Ra has some quite hardcore lyrics, but she sings them so angelically that you'd hardly notice. It's quite interesting. Um, so Rainer will be performing live at the waiting room on Thursday the 23rd of January and it's free. You have to uh, book for tickets on the Eat Your Own Ears website but um, the tickets are free. So this is uh, Raina with Hope and this is the Woman's Hour remix.
to Spot London. We tell true stories. We tell them live. And we tell them all across London. This story was told by Daniel Simpson in July 2013, where the theme was quitting. Life's too short to waste away in a dead-end job. When that dawned on me this time ten years ago, I was working as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times, and my boss was enabling the invasion of Iraq. Now, that wasn't my idea of what journalism was about, and I wasn't really up for writing pro-war propaganda, so I resigned. And instead, I decided to try and change the world. Now, the form that my plan took was rather dictated by my circumstances. I was, uh, at that time, assigned to report on the Balkans, so I was living in Serbia, which was uh, supposed to be responsible for the wars that had torn apart Yugoslavia. When I'd moved there, I didn't really know what to expect, because it doesn't really get the best of press... But I found that it was actually quite good fun. And uh, to my surprise, once, once I decided that my job didn't hold that much interest for me anymore, I found myself really enjoying it. Uh, I went out and uh, made friends with the people who I'd been previously looking at through a microscope and uh, a magnifying glass to try and work out whether they were still vermin. And uh, they turned around and said to me, well, those questions you were asking us before were really quite daft, you know, because you were saying, uh, you know, have you accepted your guilty for what your leaders did for the last 10 years? Well, we didn't really agree with any of it. And uh, do you agree with what your bosses are doing right now? Because if not, then you're a bit of a hypocrite. And, you know, I suddenly thought, actually, what I need to do is do something to try and change people's perception of this part of the world. It's not as bad as I thought. There's some nice bars. We stay out all night. People then go to work. They don't do any work. It's a great place. What's not to like? And then one of these characters I met was, uh, he was quite anarchic. And uh, he really got under my skin. He had a voice a bit like a Kalashnikov, it's true. But um, I forgave him that. We were in Serbia. And uh, he had some wild ideas, and he didn't seem afraid about trying to make them come true. And uh, the more I listened to him, the more I thought, this man was the man with the plan, and uh, I needed to persuade him to actually make these things happen. 
And the plan was quite simple, really. There was this island in the middle of Belgrade at the, uh, the point where the River Danube meets the River Sava, and uh, it's known as Big War Island. And we thought, why not stage the next summer of love on Big War Island? <laughs> and uh, that would be quite possible, you see, because this guy, uh, he reckoned he knew some, some people in London who could help him book a few DJs and maybe some bands, and uh, we could have a big music festival. And it could be something a bit like Ibiza crossed with Glastonbury. We were going to pitch it to the... British music press as, and we could have like a, a tourist industry coalesce around this love-in on Big War Island, and not only would it interest the outside world and change Serbia's reputation, it would draw in young people from neighbouring republics who had grown up hating their neighbours, the Serbs, and uh, might now come specially to Belgrade to see all these bands that we were going to book, and uh, of course there was only one slight problem with this wonderful theory, we needed some cash to pay for these acts. So we sat down and started thinking. And I thought, well, you know, the New York Times, pretty good calling card. Why don't I take advantage of all those people who used to take advantage of me and summon me into their rooms to take dictation and put their opinions in a newspaper and call it facts? Uh, so I decided, OK, we'll start at the top. Let's go for NATO. We need a bridge to connect Big War Island to the shore. Uh, how about we ask NATO to lend us a pontoon bridge in the name of uh, you know, being nice to the people they bombed a few years ago? Um, funnily enough, they uh, looked at me like I was nuts. So I then thought, how about this guy who was a Nobel Prize winning Auschwitz survivor? Uh, he might know some rich people. And uh, sure enough, when I cornered him in his Upper East Side apartment uh, with two of my friends from Belgrade, uh, he, uh, he said he might introduce us to Bill Gates. Um, but I think he was just trying to get rid of us because uh, he certainly never called me back after I left. So we returned to Serbia with wonderful ideas but no money and started scrounging around town to see what we might be able to dig up. And there were some very shady businessmen who seemed to have a lot of money, and they seemed to have got very rich out of 10 years of warmongering. Uh, and uh, they, uh, therefore, were not potentially the nicest people to be asking for money. But um, I didn't really think there was much I could do to, 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 to change anything unless I was prepared to work with what we had. So I said, OK, if we can borrow some money off you and put on this festival, and then we can have a really nice gathering, and there can be this kind of revolutionary shift in young people's consciousness then everything will be wonderful and uh, we'll pay you back and uh, something will change in this part of the world. I should probably mention at this point that I was very stoned and uh, had been uh, smoking rather a lot of weed since I'd moved to Belgrade. Um, I didn't like my job very much and I was getting more and more disillusioned, so I started taking advantage of my job in other ways. Uh, I used to fly to wherever I had to travel uh, for work via Amsterdam or via Zurich, where I had uh, some good friends who would sell me the best quality uh, Himalayan hashish, which I used to stick in condoms and pack up my backside and take back to Belgrade and then smoke uh, in vast quantities all day long. And uh, the reason for this was I'd been previously to another festival uh, at the confluence of two rivers in India uh, called the Kumbh Mela, where there had been 10 million people gathered together on one day, coming together in this revolutionary sense of purpose to uh, wash themselves in the holy waters and uh, feel a connection to the ultimate source of everything. And I thought, well, if I could just channel some of that energy and touch it down on Big War Island, everything will be fine. Uh, and... Unfortunately, I'd confused that energy with just smoking a lot of hash because I was sitting there with these holy men in India who do that all day long as well. And uh, I thought, if I just get really stoned, I'll be like them. <laughs> anyway, sure enough, we uh, did borrow some money from these shady businessmen. We booked a load of bands. I started feeling really cool like I'd never been as a teenager and uh, started strutting around Belgrade as the promoter of the Echo Festival, which took place in July of 2003. 150,000 people turned up. Uh, they had a pretty good time, by and large, despite the presence of 500 well-armed former war criminals who we'd been forced to hire as our security, uh, and uh, the, uh, the police outriders who were patrolling the river on jet skis and trying to make sure that nobody swam across. Uh, we thought at least, OK, the security's been well taken care of, we'll be making some decent money on the gate. Um, everybody's had a nice time, no one's died, this is uh, not something you can always take for granted in that part of the world. But uh, behind the scenes, uh, I started to realise by the final day that everything was not quite as rosy as I'd hoped. Um, I was watching people stuff money into black bin liners, uh, and I thought this was part of the plan. They were going to take it off the island as quickly as possible and count it and put it in our bank account. But uh, when it came to trying to pay our staff at the end of the event, I was told there was no money. And at this point, it dawned on me that uh, it probably would have helped to learn to speak Serbian a little bit better. But then, like most foreign journalists, I was in a country without speaking pretty much a word of the language. Uh, and 
at the same time, it would also perhaps have helped not to be getting quite so high because I had really no idea what had been going on at the festival. I just knew I had this charismatic business partner who got me into uh, a situation where me and uh, all these sketchy characters from the Belgrade underworld were together putting on this event. And at the end of it, there was no money. Uh, at which point I asked him for an explanation. And he said, well, of course, you see, these, uh, these guys who are our security, they're uh, actually in alliance with the government, because the government is just a front for the mafia. And, of course, the government is now being whitewashed as a, a, a new democracy, and that means that Western taxpayers are funding this sham. And uh, actually, what we've really done is uh, uh, tried try to get into some sort of complicated alliance with uh, the Serbian underworld, uh, Western intelligence agencies, mm. uh, the democratic government of Serbia, and uh, some guys who are running a rival festival uh, who are actually also friends with these people, and they've decided to shaft us and make sure that the other festival makes money but not ours. I said, uh, okay. <laughs> that sounds like a conspiracy theory. And he said, well, you can call it what you like, but facts are facts. And uh, so uh, I thought, mm, well, where's my money then? Uh, I was kind of hoping to get rich off this thing, and there wasn't any cash at all. But there was a large Tesco shopping bag that had been brought over by a, a rather dodgy guy who we'd... Uh, requested bring us some drugs to hand out to performers and in that bag there was still the best part of 100 grams of coke and 500 pills and half a kilo of hash so i took that back to my apartment and spent the next two weeks having a a one-man party Uh, at the end of which i was feeling rather paranoid uh, and it occurred to me that um, there might be some other people who might want paying for this festival and uh, that they might actually come around knocking on my door what with me being a foreigner and uh, assumed to be rich and uh, also not best liked in that part of the world given that my government had bombed their country only four years earlier Uh, so i suddenly thought maybe it's a good idea to leave tomorrow Uh, So I did, and uh, I I took refuge in a friend's farmhouse in France where I decided to sit down and try and write about this whole experience and uh, try and make some sense of what had happened. But as I did, as I smoked, I realised that none of it made any sense whatsoever. Uh, All I knew for certain was that this thing had taken place and I'd had some very good intentions and they'd gone horribly wrong. I'd had this dream and it had turned into a monster and it had eaten me. And uh, really, in the end, I suppose there wasn't anyone to blame except myself. And uh, that was when the really awful truth sank in. It's probably time to smoke a bit less hash. Thank you. (laughs) For more stories, head to sparklondon.com. Spark London is produced by Joanna Yates. With audio production by Matt Hill. At rethinkdaily.co.uk. And the next Spark London real-life storytelling evening is tonight at the Hackney Attic at the Picture House on Mare Street. It starts at 7.30 and costs £4 on the door. So now it's listings time, and this is where we give you our recommendations for the week ahead in London. Nia and Anna, what have we got? So I'm going to start off with Monday, the 13th, today. Um, So there's a traditional tea dance afternoon with tea and cake at Shoreditch Hall. Um, I mean, most of us are going to be working, but it's at 1.30 until 4.30. So, you know, if you... If you work freelance, which many of you do, <laughs> you, like sure, but you can head on down there. Just, just so you know, Nia, I've been told that um, the age that it's aimed is a bit far off from well, us. Well, it says all ages and levels welcome. So if you want to enjoy some traditional dance in Victorian grandeur surroundings, um, then you know this is the place for you. And the host is called Mr Wonderful. So Oh, he better amazing. be wonderful. Yeah. And <laughs> That's tickets what are... £5. So going on to Tuesday, uh, this is the last chance to see um, this exhibition at Rich Mix. It's by an artist called Mary Zurich. I think that's how you pronounce it. And she's created printed textiles using photography, digital media and uh, screen printing. Um, going on to Wednesday, the 15th, again, last chance. This is uh, last chance for you to see a theatre performance called Used Blood Junkyard, and that's at the Arcola Theatre. And so the topic here is art terrorism, and it sounds quite bizarre. It says it features cameo um, roles from everyone, including Einstein and Santa Claus. I've seen uh, some of them lurking about at the Arcola. Oh, really? <laughs> Kind of wondering what, yes, I was wondering what was going on. Okay, so. well, that explains it, right? Um, and they're sort of commenting on national identity, manipulation, pop culture, mass communication, you know, serious topics, but seemingly in quite a bizarre way. So that's at the Arcola in Dalston. 
performances all of this week up until Thursday the 16th and performances start at 8pm and tickets cost £9. And then on Thursday, well, this isn't Thursday specific, but um, it's a place called Ziffablatt and it's at 388 Old Street and it's a new place, um, a cafe and space that um, where you pay per minute. So everything there is free, coffee, tea, you know, you can help yourself to food. It has a bit of a... a sort of common room vibe, but it's 3p per minute. Wow. So I wonder how that works. You have to kind of clock in, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Well, so it's really, you... it's really relaxed apart from clocking in and out. <laughs> how would you stop people just coming in and stuffing their faces in like a minute and leaving? Because there isn't I know, really, is I, I think as far as I understood, there isn't actually that much you can stuff your face with. Right. You have to actually make it. Yeah. <laughs> so like Cunning. you can make the coffee and stuff but it's just like the bridge. Well, yeah, maybe. I think the idea is that it you know, feels a kind of feels like a sort of common room. Um and it's just a kind of new way of um you know a new hanging way of out. hanging out. Business <laughs> too. So it's open daily 11am until midnight. And so for the weekend listings I'm going to hand over to Anna. Yes. Friday the 17th um Basically, uh, what's going to happen is um, Ping Pong Madness is going all over the place. And it's in a different venue. So, um, a music hall. The Wilton's Music Hall, which we are always talking about, which we love, has an amazing architecture. And they are having people playing ping pong in there. You have to pay um, five quid if you want to be part of the... uh, game but like if you tournament? just yeah the tournament okay. that's what i was looking for um but uh, if you just you know if you just want to watch it's free and it's just worthy just to go inside and, and have a look around i'm quite surprised that the wiltons are doing aren't they you know the building is sort of uh you know quite delicate and delicate. falling apart in some areas ping pong balls well, yeah. quite soft, i've seen a gig there and it was it was fine i didn't feel threatened but um just you know it starts at 7 30 if you want to start playing um and yeah just just had that from that time um, but also on friday this is not the thing uh, uh head to the um rough trade east for the film screening of the epic of everest which is a film record of the legendary everest expedition that happened in the 1920s there will be some special appearances and um starts at 6 30 p.m details on how to get there will be up on our website so um, have a look on that on Saturday the live uh, drawing class it basically will be um, uh, a model and the, the guys have composed um, an imaginative surreal scene around it um, they inspired in, uh, in art and fashion uh, just in the yeah, basically in contemporary art and fashion. And £10 um, includes materials and the model and happens at the book club from 2pm. And Imagine a sort of Dali type. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Surreal jungle I got, I got yeah. a, bit, a bit confused just by the description, so... It might be interesting just to go there and kind of report on that. If there's one of our listeners going, you should definitely tweet us. Um, Take a photo. Pictures. Yes. Not, not on, don't, the model. We don't want your drawings. Not, yeah. want photo. Just, just <laughs> of the scenario. We don't care about anything else. And finally, um, for Sunday or on any other day, you can head to Clapham because there's um, a cafe based in an old public toilet. It's called The Convenience and um, is run by Katie Harris. And Ia, you'll be talking to her next week, so you'll be telling us all about this and the the whole experience too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It sounds maybe a bit off-putting, but I think they've made it work from the things that I've heard, but I'm going to be speaking to her this week, so on the next show in two weeks, you'll hear all about it. Looking forward to that. Well, thank you for those splendid array of listings there. Um, They can all be found in the listings tab on our website at eastshark.com. East Shark? No, eastcarshow.com. And we'll be tweeting them throughout the week too, so just keep your eyes out for those. And for our last track, something a little little bit more upbeat to end the show with and to start your morning. Um, So this is something from Hello Skinny, that's a solo project uh, of the drummer Tom Skinner, hence the skinny, um, who's also been involved with people like uh, Sons of Kemet, Melt Yourself Down, Matthew Herbert and the Owini Sagoma Band. And this is his first project as a solo composer and producer. And you'll see the result is quite hypnotic. 
and he's playing at Cafe Otto on Thursday the 23rd of January as part of the Babel Label Nights. So there's just enough time before we go to say we've been Eastcast, recorded in the Abbott Street Studios in Dalston. We're on NTS every other Monday, but in the meantime, you can catch us anytime on eastcastshow.com or watch out for regular updates on Facebook and Twitter search. Thank you very much for listening. And here's Hello Skinny.